Listen now to the Word of God, Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and all villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So reads the Word of God. Last week we saw God identify and send out the first missionaries from Antioch. From a worshiping, fasting, praying church at Antioch. Nick, as as he was preaching, also pointed out that his text and ours today really are of one piece. You can see that as verse 4 opens with so. Telling us what happened after the church laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them off. Luke doesn't even repeat their names here. That's another way that you can tell this is of one piece. He just says here in verse 4, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. He's depending on his connection with the first three verses as we see it on the page here for us to understand who they are. As far as we know, at that point, Barnabas and Saul. But we learn that also there's John. We'll say a bit about that in a moment. So this is clearly one passage, verses 1 through 12, but we are still handling them separately because of the importance of each, really. First of all, in that first paragraph, the actual process of identifying and sending within the context of the local church, that's an important piece to get a handle on, how that works, how it worked in the first instance here. The actual process of identifying and sending within the context of the local church which Nick, our global outreach pastor, handled very nicely last Sunday. And then here, second, the first steps of the first journey, the first stops on the first journey, they deserve our attention because we can discern some things from them that are helpful. And we have to say, putting the two back together again for just a moment, what must that worshiping prayer time have been like at the church at Antioch? You think about that? What an amazing experience it might have been to 
be there present with them, their senses heightened by fasting in anticipation of God's answer? Did the Holy Spirit speak to them audibly? Did they all hear His voice at the same time? Or did He just impress it on their hearts silently such that one or another of them had to speak up and say, you know, I believe God wants us to send out Barnabas and Saul to carry this gospel message to other places. And then somebody else, and maybe more than one, would have to respond saying, you know, I believe so too. How did the Holy Spirit speak to them? What was that experience like? In that fasting-aided, worshiping prayer time, the church in Antioch that resulted in the sending of Barnabas and Saul. Well, we don't know the answer to that question with confidence, but we do know this must have been an amazing experience. Just like back in chapter 4, you remember, where the place in which they were praying was shaken. This had to be almost indescribable. So if we can't know exactly how it transpired and exactly what it was like to be there, we can at least say, well, what happened next? Where did this go? What was the next thing that happened as their Spirit-initiated sending was put into action by their going? Then we might also ask, what difference does this make to us? We're going to answer both of those questions, hopefully, in the next few minutes. Three summary statements, three summary statements that will walk us through this brief passage and help us to see the answers to those questions, just simply what happened next, but then what difference does this make to us? You can see the outline will follow there in the bulletin. The Spirit directs the missionary's steps. That's emphasis coming from verses 4 and 5. Then the Spirit empowers the missionary's works. Verses 6 to 11, and then finally, the Spirit accomplishes the missionary's results there in verse 12. Three summary statements. Let's walk through them quickly together. First, the Spirit directs the missionary's steps. Verses 4 and 5. Barnabas and Saul hit the road together with John, who was also called Mark, we're told here in verse 5. Luke mentioned John Mark already as he is so often doing, introducing quickly a character that's going to come back and play a little bit more prominent role a bit later. He introduced us to John Mark back in verse 12. It was John Mark's mother's home in Jerusalem that Peter went to when he was miraculously released from prison. Her name was Mary. So it was likely her servant girl, Rhoda, who left Peter standing on the street to go report to the others that their prayers had been answered. That was at the home of John, also known as Mark, his mother's house, and her name was Mary. Mary then was Barnabas' aunt, we can discern, because Paul reports over in Colossians chapter 4 that John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. So these guys are linked. It's helpful to know that in these stories, to see that These guys knew each other before they were characters on the pages of God's most holy word. Well, these three, verse 4, were sent out by the Holy Spirit. There's the 
the title of our message this morning. There's the centerpiece of what's going on here. They were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So there is immense expectation about what might take place because the Holy Spirit of God is acting and identifying and sending. And we want to know what happens. They were sent out by the Holy Spirit and we see that they went down about about 15 miles southwest to Seleucia, which is the nearest seaport. And from there they sailed, the text says, continuing on in almost a, a straight line southwest from Antioch to the island of Cyprus, about 130 miles across the Mediterranean Sea from Seleucia. Verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Barnabas and Saul always went to the Jews first, meeting them in the synagogues to preach that the risen Jesus is the Christ. They always went to the Jews first. This was their custom. That's the word that was used for it by Luke over in chapter 17. This was their custom, and we'll see it was their custom proven again and again throughout Luke's account of the remainder of this story. But that's where they went first at Seleucia. Now, these people here on the island of Cyprus, just out in the Mediterranean, a short ways from the coast of the mainland, these people may have also been acquaintances of Barnabas or maybe even friends of his, especially the ones in the synagogues because we learned way back in chapter 4 that Barnabas was actually a Levite and a native of Cyprus. So the first place they go is to Barnabas' home ground heading southwest on the first missionary journey. But but we should not actually read that into the reason why they're going, why they're go- where they're going. We should never neglect that their travels were in response to their being sent out by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was guiding their steps. The Spirit of God was pointing the direction that they should go. Second statement we have here this morning is that the Spirit empowers the missionary's work. So let's move into the bulk of this passage in verses 6 through 11. From Salamis, they, they went through the whole island as far as Paphos. That's how Luke records it there in verse 6. They went through the whole island as far as Paphos. And Paphos was on the opposite coast, sort of the, the southwest corner of the island when they had landed on the southeast corner. And from the word that Luke chooses here that's translated on our page in our ESVs as gone through... They'd gone through the whole island. Some suggest that that's a unique word that suggests that this was a preaching tour all along the way, and it's quite possible. In fact, we would almost expect that it was. But Luke doesn't give any time to telling the story of what happened in between those two cities, in between Salamis and Paphos. He's going straight ahead in this first telling of the first missionary journey to this city, Paphos, on the southwest corner of the island. He records only what happened there. And while they were there, Barnabas and Saul and John Mark met an an odd fellow. He's described as a Jewish magician named Bar-Jesus, which essentially just means son of Joshua, Bar, son of 
Joshua, Jesus. Or maybe his name actually meant something like son of salvation because that's what the name Joshua or Jesus means. He'll be called Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins. So this Jewish magician's name could translate into English as son of salvation. That's who they meant. Now this word magician is a bit unclear because it really does have a double meaning and you have to understand which one it means here. It translates into Latin as magus. Does that sound familiar from Simon Magus? The plural then would be magi, wise men. That's how Bar-Jesus is described. So if it translates into Latin that way, then we understand that a magician, the magi, would have been wise men. They're special advisors to a ruler, a, a counselor, or an honorable gentleman that is an attendant to a ruler. And because of Bar-Jesus' association here with the Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus, this meaning is a genuine possibility in this text. But the other meaning is a bit more sinister. In fact, it's quite a bit more sinister. The other meaning of magos is a magician, a sorcerer, a wizard, you might even say. We saw this with the so-called Simon Magus, the great one who proclaimed himself great back in chapter 8. And even though it may be hard to process the thought of a Jewish sorcerer, since that was forbidden so clearly in the law, Deuteronomy 18, because it's joined with a Greek word here that could be transliterated into English as pseudo-prophet, false prophet, right here in verse 6, it's clearly intended to have the latter meaning. This Bar-Jesus was a sorcerer, a magician. He wasn't just an attendant to a ruler and a wise man. But he was probably playing the role of a wise man in the life of Sergius Paulus. And you can see that as the story progresses. This was a bad guy. But he was associated with an emerging good guy whom we also need to meet. A proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a proconsul was appointed by the Roman Senate to govern a district. These were really governing officials. They were given wide-ranging powers, including, as we'll see over in chapter 19, they were the judges in a given region. These guys wielded power. Sergius Paulus and Gallio of Achaia are really the only two proconsuls that we meet in the book of Acts. Sergius Paulus here, Gallio over in chapter 18. And it can also just incidentally and as an aside be helpful to know the difference between a proconsul and a procurator or a governor. We also read about on the pages of Scripture with some names we recognize both from the Gospels and from here in the book of Acts. Pontius Pilate was a governor, was a procurator. So is Antonius Felix before whom Paul will appear and Porcius Festus, procurators, were appointed by the emperor. They were a personal agent of the emperor. They weren't just the governing officials elected by the Senate. These were guys that were special agents of the, of the emperor in a given region. So just keeping that straight. This proconsul, this Sergius Paulus, is described here in verse 7 as an intelligent man. An intelligent man. Perhaps... His intelligence was demonstrated most clearly by the fact that he was curious about the gospel. He summoned Barnabas and Saul, the text says here, and sought to hear the word of God. 
From what we've read so far in the book of Acts, we know then that the Spirit of God is active already. He's doing something here. The gospel was gaining the attention of the highest levels of regional government already in Rome on the first locale of the first missionary journey. And these Holy Spirit-sent representatives here were enabled by the Spirit to answer the call of such interest. They were summoned, they went into the presence and and were obviously doing something because Sergius Paulus had to... I'm sorry, but because Elimus the magician had to respond somehow and intervene. Complications arose in their dialogue with Sergius Paulus. Complications, therefore were present in the proclamation of the gospel from the very start of the very first mission. There, folks, is a lesson for us worth writing down. There's one worth holding on to. There's other things that we'll learn from this, but we at least need to recognize that in the first town where some extended description is being given to the work of Barnabas and Saul in carrying the gospel to the nations... Opposition arose at the highest levels even as the opportunity to proclaim the gospel arose in those same places. Complications were present from the very start of the very first mission. And Bar-Jesus here, also called Elimus, there in verse 8, his name is explained right here, but we don't really understand the connection. We could take some time trying to trace out some theories, but it really isn't worth that. There's something about his double name and, and there's something going on with names throughout this text. You notice that Paul's name is, is first mentioned here. Um, uh, Sergius Paulus, we'll, we'll see that in just a moment. But Elimus, got a separate name for this missionary, uh, I'm sorry, for this, um, this uh, sorcerer who is impeding the missionary's work. We don't really understand the connection between Elimus and Bar-Jesus. But what we do know is that Elimus was true to his descriptive name, a magician, a sorcerer, in that he tried to oppose Barnabas and Saul, verse 8, and turn the proconsul away from the faith. Active opposition to the gospel. So where's this going? Verse 9, But Saul, who was first called Paul, that is his Roman name, first called Paul right here as he entered the Gentile world. That makes sense. Nick made that point quickly last week as well. This is just Saul the Jew engaging. And this would probably have been part of his official name, actually. As he enters the Gentile world, he is identified as Paul and will be by Luke for the remainder of the book of Acts. But he meets up with a proconsul by the very same name. Sergius Paulus. So Paul the missionary meets Paul the governing official in this text. And Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit then, looked intently at Elimus and said, You son of the devil! No longer son of salvation. You enemy of all righteousness! full of deceit and all villainy. Paul's not mincing words, is he? Elimus was the enemy of both goodness and truth 
an utter imposter and charlatan. That's the way the New English Bible translates this language. An utter imposter and charlatan. Guilty of causing perversion instead of conversion. John Stott points that out, that these two words, the perversion that that Elimus is causing here is, is a, a word that's connected with words he uses elsewhere for conversion. So he's perverting the gospel rather than recognizing its converting power. And Paul is identifying that. And it's not that Paul was just fed up with him. He didn't just blow up at Elimus. He's not just exasperated. He looked intently at him. The idea is that he fixed his gaze on him. Elimus almost certainly knew it was coming before the words ever started. Paul didn't just erupt. He looked intently at him and then filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told, verse 9, he said all of this, finishing with a piercing question in verse 10. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? God Himself has made this straight and clear and you are obscuring it and twisting. That's the response that Paul gave to Elimus in the form of a question. Will you not stop doing this? many things we could talk about here, but bottom line, this was the judgment of God expressed through the voice of His divinely empowered servant, silencing the foolish opposition of a deceived man. There, in essence, is what Paul just did. This is the judgment of God on Elimus expressed through the voice of His divinely empowered servant, silencing the foolish opposition of a deceived man. God Himself acting through Paul's words. He was empowering the work that they were doing. This was the God of all salvation shutting down this son of the devil in an undeniable demonstration of His sovereign purpose to save and of His irrepressible power to do so. There is nothing Elimus could do to stand in the way and Paul would move him out of the way if he continued to try to stand there. Paul, empowered by the Spirit who filled him. The God of all salvation shutting down this son of the devil in an undeniable demonstration of his sovereign purpose to save and of his irrepressible power to do so. This sorcerer's eyes were turned off to the light of the sun verse 11, and the proconsul's heart was being turned on to the light of life. These two were happening simultaneously in demonstration of the power of God. This is God at work by His Spirit dispensing judgment and blessing according to His sovereign will through the work of His servants toward the achievement of His purpose and plan. God Himself dispensing judgment and blessing simultaneously and that's how God works. That moves us on into this third statement. The Spirit accomplishes the missionary's results. We've already dipped into verse 12 a little bit. Let's go in there with full intent at this point. This is just what happened. The missionary's results accomplished by the sovereign hand and power of God. 
Verse 12, the proconsul believed. We know what that takes from previous descriptions in Acts. Sovereign work of God upon his heart, opening his eyes to the sense of his unbelief and to the work of salvation accomplished by Christ on the cross, affirmed by his resurrection and ascension. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at what? The act? No, at the teaching of the Lord. It's the content of this message that's demonstrated in this expression of power as Elimus is struck blind that affirmed this intelligent man's confidence in the teaching itself, not just in the act of striking blind. If what he was hearing was true, surely the God who could accomplish that salvation can blind this servant. So blinding the servant was just affirmation of the truth, the word that was being taught. And so Luke records the the conversion of the first Gentile with no known religious background. Sergius Paulus is another first in the book of Acts. Cornelius, the first Gentile, but Sergius Paulus, the first Gentile, disconnected from any Jewish background as far as we know. And he just happened to be a Roman ruler who was being deceived by a Jewish sorcerer. This whole scene just drips with irony. Are you hearing it as we move through? It literally is just dripping with irony. That's why it's worth standing alone, even brief as it is in the long book of Acts, why it's worth standing alone just to to let this story sink in of watching the gospel advance and what we learn about God and about His servants and about the message and about the recipients as that happens. Some examples of irony. This son of salvation by name is exposed to be a son of the devil who opposes all truth. Meanwhile, the one in whose ear he has supposedly been whispering wisdom, the one who shares a name with the messenger of life, Paul, receives salvation even as he watches his seer get struck blind. All of this in the subtle details that Luke includes, a master historian helping us to see the dripping irony of this encounter and therefore the power of the gospel as it advances into entirely unknown territory. But all along there is no mistaking, no mistaking that the Holy Spirit is the guiding agent here, directing the course of these sent ones empowering their message and accomplishing the outcomes as they faithfully dispense the teaching of the Lord. That's what we see in this text. And in the process of this telling, we're reminded of three things that we already know, but that are all too easily forgotten. So I want to rehearse them again one more time and just walk through essentially these same three points with us in mind for just the next few moments. As this process, in the process of this telling, we're actually reminded of the three things that we've used as our outline this morning, three things that we already know. None of those were new to any of us here, but things that we can all too easily forget in our day. Let's walk through them then quickly and see what we learn. First, God still guides our steps today. 
can treat this as lesson number one, rooted in point number one. God still guides our steps today in the spreading of the gospel. He not only leads some to foreign lands for a lifetime and others for a short term, He also orders conversations at the office water cooler or in the line at the grocery store or over the back fence in the neighborhood. He does all of that. He guides steps of His children wherever they go. Wherever He leads our steps, that is where we are on mission with Him. God still guides our steps today. We're called ones, sent ones, just like Paul and Barnabas and John Mark here in this passage. We too have received the great commission from Jesus. And the way Matthew recorded it, we hear him saying, as you go into all the world, make disciples. And get this, the very same Holy Spirit who sent and went with Paul sends and goes with us. The same Holy Spirit. The same one who through Paul blinded Elimus in Paphos. That same Spirit goes with us in the proclamation of the Gospel. Still, today, our calling to share the good news is ours on us just like it was on Him. And as we go about our way, we are charged with that gospel. Whether we're on Cyprus or in Antioch or back in Jerusalem or in Warrenville. As we've said from the beginning of the book of Acts, this story is our story. We're reading about our forefathers and foremothers and we're under the same charge, the same call as they. God still guides our steps today. Number two, God still empowers our work today. God still empowers our work today. It was not just Peter or Paul who were enabled by God to to seize the moment and express the truth. It's not just they. We're, We're equipped by the same Spirit. We still have divine appointments today that deserve to be called divine appointments, not just because we happen to have time and opportunity at the moment to share the truth. There's more to it than just that. It's not just that divine appointments to proclaim the gospel happen when we have a moment with nothing else to do. There can be called divine appointments because We are given words by the Holy Spirit to speak the gospel to the hearers in those moments just like He did through Paul. That same promise is to us. You can read about it in Ephesians 6 or Colossians 4 or 2 Thessalonians 3 with regard to Paul. You can also hear it from the words of Jesus with regard to the end times as we are called to account for our beliefs. Words will be given as they are needed to bear witness to the truth. God still empowers our work today. He empowers us in our calling. We live in a day when we need to hear this reminder while we always need to speak with gentleness and respect, there are times when our words also need to be direct, need to be clear, need to be uncompromising. Just as Paul's are here. 
with Elimus. Not exasperated, red-faced, shouting at one another, but clearly calling deception what it is. There will always be sons of the devil, full of deceit and all villainy, whispering in the ears of our leaders, trying to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. There will always be such throughout the course of the life of the church in this world. There will always be some saying Jesus isn't the only way. There will always be some saying that He didn't really rise from the dead. There will always be some saying that we won't really need to answer to Him in the end. That He's not really relevant to us still today. There will always be some saying that a fertilized human egg isn't really an image-bearing creature. That God doesn't really make us only male and female. That it's really fine to engage intimately according to our own desires, not according to His plan. There will always be some who are saying that. There will always be some who are saying that prayer is is only really helpful for, for social reassurance at times of crisis. That there's no one really listening on the other end. There will always be some who say, therefore, that when we pray, we really need to leave room in our wording for everyone to plug in their own deity. There will always be some doing just that. There will always be people all too willing to whisper in the ears of power to achieve their own agenda. Always. The people who are nothing more than enemies of all righteousness. So we need to be reminded that God still empowers our work today. And He can still speak through His people now like He spoke through Paul right here. And Paphos, he's the same God with the same purpose and the same power. We can forget that. We must remember. Third, God still accomplishes our results today. And this is a tough one. But we have to leave the outcome in his hands. It's a tough one for us. But we do leave the outcome in His hands. Only He can grant life. We know that, but it's still hard for us to hear in the heat of the battle. It's hard for us to hear when we've poured out our hearts to someone and they just don't seem interested at all in the truth that we share. Gene and I used to fight this battle daily. We lived downtown for the better part of 25 years. We, we shared the truth regularly. Everyone in our neighborhood who knew us knew what we did and knew what we believed. But we didn't see one adult conversion, not one that we know of with confidence from our community or our local public school where we spent so much time. And all that time. There were many through our church work that came to Saving Faith. Some of them are sitting in this room this morning. Praise God for that. But in the hardened soil of downtown Chicago, we spread a lot of seeds and just never saw any take root. 
that can be discouraging. We saw literally scores of people attend concerts or special church services with us. We had neighbors and teachers and clerks at local stores that would call us for input at times of personal crisis, asking for our perspective on any number of moral issues, and even buying gifts for our newborn children as they arrived. But no one among them showed any sort of genuine hunger for the gospel. So why didn't discouragement overcome us? Honestly, I have to confess that at times it really did. But we had to keep reminding ourselves of this point. God accomplishes the results, not us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the way the prophet Jonah said it. We're called to share the truth faithfully and winsomely in it. At the end of the day, our joy must be rooted in the Lord and in the Lord alone, not in the relative success of our witness. That work is God's responsibility alone. Isaiah learned this himself in the wake of his vision of the holy and saving God. Do you remember the text? You know what? We're close to the end. You can turn there with me if you'd like to follow along. I'm just going to read a few verses from there so that we can be reminded of how this was part of his call. Isaiah has a vision of the exalted God. The train of his robe filled the temple. He heard the seraph saying, holy, 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 even as we sang this morning. One of the two texts in Scripture in which that great hymn is anchored is here in Isaiah 6, page 571 in your pew Bible, by the way, if you would like to turn there. Isaiah saw a vision, heard the call, who will go and who can we send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And in the wake of hearing the call and in responding, I'll go, this is what Isaiah heard, beginning in verse 9 of Isaiah 6. The Lord said to him, go and say to this people. So here's Isaiah's message. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this... That's the end of a quote there, by the way. Now, this is back to the Word of the God directly to Isaiah. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah is being sent to confirm the lostness of the lost. Not to enjoy the rejoicing of confession and repentance and conversion. Verse 11, Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. He goes on, This is a different context, to be sure. Temporary judgment falling on unfaithful Israel in fulfillment of the promises of covenant curses that would come on their unbelief and disobedience. That's what's happening here. That's being announced. But this is one of the clearest texts in Scripture reminding us that salvation is in the hands of the Lord and so is judgment. Israel's being judged here. 
Salvation and judgment are in the hands of the Lord, and we must trust Him with both. Because He is a good and merciful and loving and just and holy God, and all He does is right. So two quick things before we go, just two quick observations. First, for you who've trusted Christ. For you who've trusted Christ, folks, this is our God. This is our God. This is His purpose and plan, and His power is sufficient to bring it about. This is our God. His power is sufficient to bring about His purpose and plan through us. That's how He's purposed to do it. To bring about His purpose and plan through us. Even though we see many people whispering deceit and villainy and crookedness in the ears of power these days. Our hope, our trust is in the true and living God whose power is immensely, infinitely greater We may think we live in the days of Isaiah when ears and eyes and hearts have been divinely shut. And maybe we do. But this is still the only way of salvation. Proclaiming it is still our calling. And the power of God is still sufficient to accomplish His will according to His plan and timing. We have the same calling on us Isaiah did. We're in good company. So that's a word to those who have trusted Christ as Savior. You who have not trusted Jesus. Perhaps today's the day. Perhaps today's the day. Right here in this brief text, we see not only the amazing power of God to save, and to save whoever He appoints to salvation, the Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus, We also see His amazing power to judge. We see His willingness to judge. We even see, therefore, His intention to judge, to bring down judgment on all unbelief, on all opposition to His good purpose and plan and will. That's an amazing reality to confront in this brief little exchange in Paphos. The amazing saving plan and purpose of God which He has the power to implement right alongside of the amazing power and willingness and therefore intention of God to judge those who reject it. Friends, if you don't know Jesus today, trust Him now. Trust Him now. No special ceremony needs to happen. You hear the voice of the Spirit calling you to repentance and faith. Bow the knee in repentance and faith. Trust Him. He's a loving God. You were made for this purpose. Trust Him today. Let's now remember together the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in communion. The price that was paid for that salvation. That great salvation. The power of God demonstrated even there for the second person of the Trinity, God of very God, to take on flesh 
and actually die in the flesh. As the sacrifice for the sins of all who believe. Such that as we trust in Him, our sins are covered. The wrath of God is removed. We heard that as our service began this morning. The wrath of God against our sin is removed. It fell on Christ and we are reconciled to God to enjoy His salvation, to proclaim it through all of our days. We'll remember that body and blood of the Lord at communion. Let's pray now. And as I pray, those who are going to help serve communion, please join me at the front. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this experience of Barnabas and Paul and John Mark and their first stop along their first journey here on the island of Cyprus and here in the town of Paphos where they saw the eternal plan and purpose of God revealed yet again in real life stories. Oh, Father, help us as we read these stories, as we rehearse this history, help us, I pray, to be motivated and moved toward our own obedience to the same great commission that sent and directed and empowered Paul. May we be faithful witnesses in our own day, trusting in the God who saves and being assured that that same God also judges. In Jesus' name we pray.